Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. Washington's greatest strength was understanding his own limitations and his willingness to ask for help and ask for advice when he didn't know something. And so he wanted people around him that could provide that sort of insight that he desperately needed. That's author and White House historian Lindsay Chervinsky, author of the new book, The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. And she's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by Iron and Paper, purveyor of authentic artifacts of the American Revolution. Visit them at ironandpaper.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today, our guest is White House historian Lindsay Chervinsky, author of the new book, The Cabinet. George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. This is a really great interview today. And Dr. Chervinsky is very, very uh, refreshing, I think we can say, given the times we live in. The reason I say that uh, is because it's very hard to talk about the White House uh, without talking about the person who's residing in it. And that's true at any point in American history. And of course, we bring our own politics into it, and it gets to be very difficult to have a serious historical conversation with someone uh, without them trying to interject their own two cents about the world we live in. Dr. Travinsky, however, as you'll hear in the interview, uh, is someone who takes a very different approach, studying the White House as an institution and the presidency. Uh, as an ongoing, sort of living, breathing part of the American experience. And it's just a very, very different conversation than we often hear. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Lindsay Chervinsky. Lindsay Chervinsky, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Tell us about your background. So I'm a historian at the White House Historical Association. Um, that means that on any given day, I am researching, writing, doing media, teaching different groups, um, interacting with um, you know anyone who kind of comes into our office space when we're in our office that want to know about White House history and all of the people that lived in the space, worked in the space, and built the building, as well as, of course, the sort of iconic events that have taken place at the White House. Before that, I was a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University, and I got my BA and um, in history and political science from George Washington University and my master's and PhD from the University of California, Davis. What first drew your interest into the topic of this book? Well, so when I was doing some of my reading, I knew that I wanted to do something having to do with high politics in the early republic, and I knew that I was fascinated by Washington's administration, but I didn't really know exactly what topic or what question I wanted to ask. And so my advisor suggested I go read about the cabinet, and it turns out that there actually isn't anything to read about the cabinet, because 
there is so much extraordinary literature on Hamilton and Washington and Jefferson and their relationships. But the last book that was published on the cabinet was in 1912, and it looked at the legislation that created each one of the departments. So there wasn't anything that really told me where this institution came from, where did it emerge out of, what were the origins, what were the practices. And so I decided that that was the story I wanted to tell which was an extraordinary gift because it's such a public-facing institution. You would think that there would be a lot of literature on it. And I just got really lucky and stumbled in this opening. And so I'm thrilled to be able to provide some answers. What precedent stood for the idea of a cabinet, as we understand it, that could have influenced George Washington? It's a great question. So um, in a lot of ways, there really wasn't a precedent. There was, of course, a British cabinet, but most Americans blamed the British cabinet for instigating a lot of the conflict that had sparked into the revolution. And then there was um, a series of state councils in the state constitutions, which were primarily designed to actually limit the governor's power because they were appointed by the legislature and paid by the legislature and the governor was really obligated to seek their advice and then follow their recommendations. So both of those models were things that Washington and the secretaries were really trying to avoid. And they didn't actually meet as a group together until November 26, 1791, which was two and a half years into Washington's administration. But then once they did, Washington really relied on his Council of War experience to sort of serve as a model and a guide for the interactions that they were going to have together. He used a lot of the same sort of leadership practices, and he convened cabinet meetings for a lot of the same reasons that he had convened the Councils of War. How did Washington balance his desire for a cabinet with the lack of a constitutional guidance to really establish one? Yeah, Washington was very attentive to what was actually written in the Constitution and then sort of what he knew to be the expectations of the delegates at the Constitutional Convention, because it's really important to remember that he was there. He was the president of the convention. He didn't miss a single session. He drank tea and attended the theater and went to dinner and socialized with the delegates after every day's work. So he had a really good sense of what was expected of him. And the delegates had explicitly rejected a proposal for a body that would end up looking very similar to what the cabinet ended up being. So when he entered office, he really tried to stick to the options that were outlined for him in the Constitution, which were two of them. And they're both in Article 2, Section 2. The first is that the president will advise and consent with the Senate on matters of foreign affairs and appointments. And for us as a 21st century audience, it's really hard to imagine, but they actually really expected the Senate to serve as a council of foreign affairs, not just, you know, either a rubber stamp or a veto on, on treaties. And the Senate was much smaller, so that made a little bit more sense. But they thought that that would be a safe advisory body because the Senate was indirectly appointed from the state legislatures and so therefore could be removed if they gave bad advice. The other option was written advice from the department secretaries on issues pertaining to their department. And that was crafted very carefully because if there was written advice, then there would be transparency at the highest levels of government and the secretaries would have to take responsibility for the advice they gave. And therefore, if they gave really bad advice, they would have to take responsibility for that. 
And so Washington initially really tried to stick to these two options. He visited the Senate in August of 1789. And that went a little bit badly because he wanted immediate advice. He wanted them to sort of debate these issues. And they wanted to act like a legislative body and refer the questions to a committee and wanted him to come back later. And it was really just a mismatch of expectations. And then with the secretaries, Washington did initially exchange solely written communication. But if we think about today when we're, you know, emailing or texting, oftentimes we'll forget something and have a follow-up question, or it's really hard to tell a tone. And now imagine trying to do that with parchment and quill. And it was such a slow process, and it was frustratingly inefficient. And so Washington would he started by sending letters to secretaries and then he would ask them to come and meet with him in a one-on-one basis to sort out any further details or, you know, clear up any miscommunication. And so that's really what he did for the first two and a half years. Um, And then he decided that he really needed to bring together everyone when big questions about diplomacy or rebellion or constitutional questions came up. Who did Washington choose to serve him and why did he pick them? So there were four initial secretaries in the cabinet. There was Secretary of War Henry Knox, Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton, Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson, and Attorney General Edmund Randolph. And Randolph didn't have a Department of Justice that didn't exist at that point, but I kind of refer to him as one of the secretaries because Washington did not treat him as any less important than the other guys. And Washington had a couple of considerations when he was selecting his department secretaries. First, he had to know them and he had to trust them, which makes sense because you don't really want to work with people that you don't know and trust. Second, they needed to be men of experience and expertise, and they had to have skills or knowledge that he didn't. Washington's greatest strength was understanding his own limitations and his willingness to ask for help and ask for advice when he didn't know something. And so he wanted people around him that could provide that sort of insight that he desperately needed. Um, A great example is Thomas Jefferson. Washington wasn't fluent in French, and French was the language of diplomacy. And Washington had only been out of the country once when he was young and he went to Barbados. So he needed someone who had been to all the great sort of um, palaces and courts of the European monarchies to be able to talk about that culture and give him that sort of insight. The final thing that he really took into consideration when he was appointing the secretaries was did they represent some sort of interest or group or faction or region that was different from the others? And so Washington really saw the cabinet and his appointments more broadly, including like the Supreme Court and some of the ambassadors, as an opportunity to build unity among the new nation. The emotional ties between the states were incredibly fragile, and there wasn't really a sense of nationalism like we have today. And so He thought that if he had people in office that sort of represented New England and the middle states and the western states and the slave-owning plantations in the south, that he would be able to encourage people to feel like they were represented in this new government. And that is actually a precedent that has really, for the most part, held true in American history, and people have followed his example. One of the themes that's pervasive throughout your book is the informality of Washington's cabinet. What were these meetings like? Absolutely. So 
one of the amazing things that I sort of discovered as I was doing this project was that the cabinet was really intended to serve as a private advisory body to the president. When the secretaries were dealing with sort of their bureaucratic issues and the, and the issues pertaining to their individual departments, they would meet with him one-on-one -on -one and discuss those issues. And in, in that capacity, they were really bureaucrats. But when they came together, it was to provide advice in sort of a collective way about issues that were so broad and so grand that they really didn't just fit into one department. And so in, in those instances, what served Washington's purposes best was that he would often send out um, a letter ahead of time with a list of questions and give the secretary some time to consider them, then use that list of questions sort of as the meeting agenda. And if the secretaries disagreed during the meeting, which frankly they often did, he would ask for written opinions afterwards to make sure he had all of the information, to make sure he understood what they were advocating for, and to give himself time to sort of think through each option before making a final decision. And that was what worked best for Washington. He liked the sort of combative nature of the debates that had worked great for him in the councils of war, and it worked very well in the cabinet because it was a way for him to stress test each position and see where the weaknesses were in those arguments. So that was really what he did sort of in 1793, 1794, the peak of cabinet activity. But later on in his presidency, his practices really shifted because Jefferson retired, Hamilton retired, Knox retired. And frankly, I think that what I affectionately refer to as the B team just didn't really match up and he didn't really trust them as much. And so he returned to having one-on-one -on -one consultations. He often would talk to Edmund Randolph, who was still his trusted advisor and his favorite at that point. And he would consult with people outside of the administration, like Alexander Hamilton in writing. Um, but he kind of avoided the group meetings because he didn't want them anymore. And so that was really fascinating for me to see how even in the course of one administration, practices really shifted and evolved. What was Washington's decision-making process like? Did he always accept the conclusions of the cabinet, uh, or did he go against their will? Yeah, well, one of the things that's so amazing that I found is that Washington rarely entered into a cabinet meeting, or a council of war for that matter, with a set idea about what he wanted to do. Um, he was very slow to make decisions, and he preferred to get all of the information first, and then once he felt like he had a good grasp on the different options, then he would make a choice and then act quickly and firmly to sort of enforce it and implement it. And so what I saw with the sort of records of the cabinet meetings is that he would ask these questions and wait for his advisors who had, you know, more expertise and more knowledge to give him all of the information, and then he would make a choice. But contrary to sort of popular understanding, um, he didn't always side with Hamilton. And in fact, that story that he always sided with Hamilton pretty much comes directly from Jefferson's writings because he was influential for so long in the political scene that he kind of dominated the way this story was told. And in fact, what I discovered was that Washington almost went back and forth between siding with Jefferson and siding with Hamilton. Not, not exactly back and forth, but pretty close. And I think that he actually said it best was what he said to Jefferson, the reason he wanted Jefferson to stay in his cabinet was that it was really helpful for him to have both perspectives because then he could try and find a middle ground between his very feisty Secretary of State and Secretary of Treasury 
and try and sort of remain impartial and neutral down the middle. What were some of the major challenges of Washington's administration that his cabinet played a specific role in confronting? I think the Whiskey Rebellion, which I discuss in Chapter 7 of the cabinet, is probably the moment when I see the most impact of, of the secretaries in, in shaping the outcome. So the violence broke out in Western Pennsylvania in the early summer of 1794, and Washington and the secretaries found out about it in July and then had to figure out what they were going to do. And Hamilton and Knox sort of advocated for immediate military action. Edmund Randolph was in favor of military action, but wanted to try a peace commission first to see if a peaceful solution could be found. And the new attorney general, William Bradford, who was a Pennsylvanian, said, why don't we send out a peace commission, but just in case it doesn't work, let's get the military ready to go so that we don't waste any time if we have to go that route. And that really appealed to Washington's sensibilities because he preferred to not get out ahead of public opinion. He was very cautious about making sure he sort of cultivated the good opinion of fellow citizens. And so he liked the idea of appearing to have tried all peaceful options, but then not wasting any time. That definitely appealed to his sense of efficiency. And so once they, he decided on this path, then the cabinet actually worked to enforce compliance from the Pennsylvania officials because Governor Thomas Mifflin and a lot of the other state officials really felt like this should be a state matter and the federal government had no right to participate. So Hamilton and Randolph and Knox basically worked to browbeat the, the, um, the Pennsylvania officials into compliance and through these series of letters kind of bully them into doing what they want. Um, it's a pretty remarkable exchange and it's an amazing moment to see that the cabinet is sidelining the state governments and is excluding Congress from this sort of domestic action, which, you know, in theory, when we think of domestic policy, that's supposed to be the purview of Congress. But the cabinet is working to support the president to have to carve out the sphere of influence over domestic policy, not because they want more power for themselves, but because they're trying to boost up the president and make sure that he can act quickly and decisively and powerfully. So I think that's one of the most um, surprising moments when we can see the influence of the cabinet most strongly. How has the cabinet changed over the last 200 years? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, obviously, the cabinet is much larger. It's much more institutionalized. The National Security Council exists, and it didn't in the 1790s. So in some ways, like, the bureaucratic structure is quite different. But what I've noticed as I've looked at the scope of American history and American presidents is that each president decides for themselves who their closest advisors are going to be, whether they're going to be in the cabinet, whether they're going to be vice presidents like um, President Obama and Joe Biden were very close, whether they're going to be family members like Kennedy was very close with his brother, who also happened to be in the cabinet as the attorney general, whether they're going to be you know, business associates or people outside of the administration. And each president decides who those people are going to be, how they're going to interact with them, when they're going to ask for advice, if they're going to listen to that advice. And those relationships really take place outside of the purview of public or congressional oversight, which I argue is actually Washington's greatest legacy from the cabinet is Washington created that system. And so while, you know, the cabinet has changed a lot, that legacy still persists. The second part that I would say is that 
the cabinet is a really great lens to study presidential leadership because it is an almost impossible task to manage a group of probably fairly powerful, opinionated, maybe you know fairly egotistical or ambitious personalities. And each president has to do so. And those that are really good at managing their cabinets end up having much stronger administrations like FDR and Eisenhower and Lincoln. And those that don't manage those personalities really get into trouble like Madison or Jackson, or I would even argue Kennedy because he had sort of these two conflicting cabinets. So I think that I would really encourage everyone when you're you know, considering the legacy of a president, think about the role of the cabinet because cabinets tend to blend into the background when they're doing really well and all of the credit goes to the president. But then they become very visible when things start to break down and there's scandal or some sort of disruption. So it is a very useful tool to studying the presidency. Today, the president's cabinet is a massive bureaucracy, uh, certainly almost unrecognizable to Washington's cabinet. Uh, Do you see any subtle cues that have survived from Washington's time to now? Sure. Well, I mean, so first and foremost, the fact that secretaries report directly to the president and are supposed to have a good relationship with the president and be advisors in that way, that directly comes from the setup of the first first administration and the first relationships there. Um, But also when a president doesn't want to consult with the cabinet, that is also Um, part of Washington's legacy because, again, towards the end of his presidency, he really sidelined some of his secretaries in favor of some other individuals. And so the the fact that the cabinet does not have a right to be a part of the decision-making process, they do not have an institutionalized vote in what the decision is going to be, that is very much a product of Washington. How does this book help us understand early America and modern America more clearly? Well, I would encourage everyone to go take a look at the Constitution, especially Article 2. And it is incredibly short. And there's not that, there aren't, just aren't that many words there, which means that very little of the day-to-day governing practices of the executive branch are actually enshrined in legislation or in the Constitution. And instead, most of them are actually built up through custom and practice. And, you know, once sort of they are accepted, whether it's internally or publicly, they become part of the scaffolding that doesn't really actually have any reason to exist other than that's what we're used to. And so it's so important for us to understand what the origins are of this system because so little was written down. The very organic evolution of day-to-day practices started with Washington, and he had to really build out all of the sort of fuzzy details of what it would look like to be president what it would look like to have an executive branch. And so understanding how he and sort of this cast of characters handled the big moments in the early Republic and the cabinet was really central to all of those big moments really helps us understand why we have a tradition that the president is primarily responsible for foreign policy or why we have an expectation that the president should sort of be this energetic figure over domestic policy or in some cases, why we even have accepted that the president gets to be a constitutional arbiter, when that's definitely not outlined in the Constitution, but was a role that Washington sort of took on with the cabinet's approval and support. Lindsay Chervinsky, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. 
The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long. Thank you.